All right, well, I think we're going to begin. So if you've gotten your goodies, you can take a seat. All right, let's let's begin. I know I need to need to slam something. I should bring that down. It's up on top of the shelf up there, you know. Bam. Yeah, right. It's not here. It's upstairs. All right. Well, let's begin. We begin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have brought us here that you continue to teach and train us by your word. Dear Lord, rule our hearts today in this same word. Amen. All right, well, we did a brief review last time, uh, so we won't do that again. But I think just to go through chapter 10 again uh, and to arrive now, uh, why this all matters is that we receive Jesus through the word. And we also can ignore Jesus through the word. So chapter 10. For the law, I'm starting in verse 1. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So I think by now we've established that a shadow is not the thing, but rather a reflection or, or uh, some, some object is there beyond which the sun shines. And you do not go to the shadow to get the thing itself. But even the shadows in the Old Testament, what did they give to the people? What did the shadows give to them? The promise. And what did the promise then give to them? What? Hope, yes. It gave them Jesus. So the point is that the promise pointed towards Jesus, and therefore their faith was in Jesus. So their faith in Jesus saved them. That is the faith of the Old Testament. The shadows pointed to the substance that is Christ. And their faith in that substance, in Jesus, saved them. Now we have the thing itself. Jesus has come. He is manifest for us. And we know now what all the shadows meant. If you're reading the Old Testament, what does this mean uh, for understanding the Old Testament? What is this idea of the shadow and the substance mean for you? When you're reading at home the Old Testament, how do you make sense of it all? Everything, everything, everything points to Jesus. He is the all in all. He is, the, he is always the interpretation. And as much as we you know, say, oh, it's the Sunday school answer, it's the right one. Jesus. Okay, so that's the shadow versus the substance, but we have the substance now. And this is why we needed that substance. Um, going into verse 9. Then he said... Okay, sorry, let me start with the he. Um, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. So again, this is Jesus talking now. So in verse 9. Then he, Jesus, said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. All right. What is the first testament, sir, the first covenant, the first promise? What's the first thing? The law. It is the law of God encapsulated in Moses and there on the tablets written down. So he takes away the first that he may establish the second. How does Jesus do it? How does he take away the first? By fulfilling it. And this then is the difference. He does not abolish the law. He fulfills it. Now Jesus said that. 
And 10 points to anyone who knows where he said that. You always blame me for not knowing the verse. Oh, <laughs> go ahead, Pastor Wolf. <laughs> yes, it is finished. Yeah, it has been finished. That's on the cross, right? So that's where he completed it. Where does he tell us that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? Well, he's always talking to one of them. The Pharisees, the Sadducees. Yeah. This is the beginning. Well, it's right after the Beatitudes. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's his first major sermon where he sits down and tells people what he came to do. Right after he says, Blessed are you, those who mourn, those who weep now. Then he says, You are the salt and the light. And then he goes into, I came not to abolish the law, not one iota of it will be taken away, but all will be fulfilled. But he ends that section with something he will then complete in the Tetelestai, in the it has been finished. He says, you must have a different kind of righteousness, one that is better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And that then is what he intends to give us. So the first testament is the law, and it must be fulfilled. And it's fulfilled in Jesus. So he takes away the first, that he may establish the second. Now in verse 10. But that, but that will, oh sorry, by. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Whose will sanctifies us? Yeah, it's Jesus' will, but what is Jesus' will? Ha <laughs> yes! My will is not to do my own will, but to do my Father's will. So then, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit comes to us by the offering of Jesus. This is the second testament. The new testament in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus comes to fulfill the first and therefore establish the second. We could not do it. And it's done by his will. He does it with a willing heart. Okay. Um, the version which is the ESV ends with um, once and for all. Yes, that's right. Yeah, in verse 10. Yep. Jesus Christ sacrificed once and for all. Now, what are we to do with all this wonderful news? In verse 19. Therefore... I'm in chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, and this is what we are to do. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So that's the first thing. What does it mean? What does it mean to draw near to God? Yeah, that's one of them, right? We can be before the Father. And to pray is, is the activity of faith. It's to depend on someone means to ask them for something. So when you trust someone, you actually ask them. So we draw near with a true heart. How else do we draw near? What does it mean to draw near to God? Don't think too hard. Well, <laughs> well, yes, but what is it? Who are you drawing near to? Well, that's how you're doing it. But who, yeah, you're, you are in fellowship with God. You're standing in the tabernacle. You are with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember, you're the house. You draw near, as in you are near God. And being near Him, you will never be taken from Him. This is why we can say, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Right? So, th so your nearness is near God. This is, this is actually, it's great because today it's all the Old Testament reading. Uh, what did Israel do to test God? 
Here's your, here's your uh, sermon test for the day. What did they do to test God? What, what were they saying in the Old Testament today? Yeah, they didn't have any water. But it's interesting because he doesn't... First, first Moses says, don't test God. We don't hear until later what they were saying. And what did they say to test God? Well, yeah, that's true, yeah. But, but there's, some, there's, some, there's a summary statement at the end of the Old Testament reading. Is he near us or not? Is God near us or not? To be near to God and, and in this way is to be near to him, meaning in his favor. Meaning that all things that now happen are for our good. Yeah. Yeah, and their test, their their testing God was that they were saying, "Well, you prove yourself, right?" Huh? I, again, it's the it's doubting that puts God to the test. Faith simply trusts Him. Well, I guess if we're going to die, he'll, he'll raise us again, right? That's faith. Whereas they had put God to the test. Okay, so drawing near then is that we are called up. Let us draw near. It's a command. But it's a command of promise. You, you can go. Go. Go to God. Okay, so that's number one. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Okay, so what, what is it? What is our hope? To be united with Christ? Well, we're united with Him now. So, what are we hoping for still? Everlasting life, yes. But you have that now. So, what are you hoping for? Death. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. What? Yeah, Christ's return, which is the same as death, right? Although, death isn't quite it because... Those who have died are also still waiting for Christ's return. So the hope then is that finally the resurrection happens and we will be with glory. That's the promise. So the promise is both that we have our sins forgiven now, but our sins being forgiven now, we are qualified and ready and can draw near on the last day. Because it won't keep going this way. Because if we examine ourselves rightly, do we want to stay in these fleshly, sinful bodies? No! We want to be without sin. And therefore, we, there is a hope that we will finally enter into that state. For now, it's in faith. And so that's why we have to hold fast the confession of our hope. Because we have hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. So, we have a hope that is given to us, and our hope is found where? What, what is the substance of our hope? What? Right. Yes. And, and what, what about him? His righteousness. Y- okay, we have his righteousness, so that's part of it. But what else? Eternity, Eternity yes. What happened after Jesus dies? He rises from the dead. So the substance of our hope is that Jesus has risen from the dead and therefore we will too. See, we get to know with all certainty that the resurrection is ours. That we will be brought through death, through sin, through the flesh of Christ and to life. But now... What do we do? First, we draw near to God. Second, we... What? Based on verse 23. Hold on. Right? That's faith. We had to hold on. Endure. 
know that this is coming to an end and that there is a conclusion, but for now, we have to hold on. And that's why sometimes all it feels like is that we're holding on for dear life. I don't know, do any of you guys do boat uh, tubing behind the, the boat? No? Maybe skiing? Okay, and maybe when you were first starting skiing, right? What do you, yeah, right. So when you're first learning these things, right, first learning to ski behind a boat, what are you doing? You're holding on for dear life, right? Yeah. That's, that's what it's like, right? We already have some of these images in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we, we have an anchor, but what is an anchor for? Why do you drop anchor in a ship? There's multiple reasons, but in the midst of a storm, why are you dropping anchor? To, to hold fast. Yeah. Now, is dropping anchor a guarantee that your boat is going to stay still? No. <laughs> no, but it will stay on that anchor, right? So you're going to get you're going to get tossed about, beat up, crucified, mortified, but in the end, the anchor holds. And so does your hope. Yeah. Well, not only does the anchor hold the boat, but the boat being long allows the boat to go into the wind, which means the boat is better able to take the waves. So it not only positions you, but strengthens you. So if Christ were to say, be our anchor, in all times and equal times and whatever, it would give us a way to be always focused on Christ because he would That's be right. Yeah. Otherwise, you get swamped and it comes over the side of the boat. Yeah, so here's a, here's a great word that I just sort of rediscovered. List. To list. Means to be inclined. Right? To list. To, and so you're, you're inclined towards Christ. You're listing towards Him. You're, every inclination is to go towards Him because He's the anchor pulling you back towards Him. Right? Um, okay, so again, same thing with holding fast. Right? This is the activity of faith. Um, and finally, in verse 24, we're given, given another one. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And that's an interesting one. Again, we, we, we talked about this in, the, in verse 25 last time. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So this is part of holding fast and it's part of drawing near to God. So if you wish to draw near to God, if you wish to hold fast... Then also, let us consider one another by what? How do we consider one another? Yes. But how do you, how do you stir people up in love? Don't think too hard. <laughs> by loving them. And how, and how then is this telling you in verse 24 and 25, how do you love somebody? By being together. Assembling. So, so again, let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. How? By not forsaking assembling together. Or, in other words, by assembling. This is how we do it. By doing this. By assembling together. And stirring each other up in love. Um, so all these three are together. Then, right? Let us draw near. Let us... Uh, hold fast and let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. Now, why are we stirring up love and good works? What What is love and good works for a Christian? You what? Yeah, that's what. So now that you're draw, now that you've drawn near to God, and because He's given you faith, you're holding fast to Him. Now it's going to produce stuff. And that stuff is love. That he, you love and you do good works. But notice that the nature of love is that we have to be stirred into it. And we stir one another up into it. We need one another. And, and, and again, this is one of the things that uh, we, we talked about this extensively last time, so I won't go too deep into it. But we're not meant to be alone. Christians are not lonely people. Jesus is not alone, but he's with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we then are not alone, but we are with one another in the faith, stirring each other up. 
All right. So now let's get into verse 26. Uh, we, we touched on this, but we didn't quite get to it. Um, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a, fearful, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the witness of, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will, will, he, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, uh, verse 26, what is he implying about drawing near to God and holding fast and gathering together? What is the implication at verse 20, 26? Go ahead, Kim. Yeah, and, and so if we sin willfully, I think this is different. It's different than sinning in weakness, which Paul addresses in Romans 7. In Romans 7, he says, the good that I want to do, I don't do. But the good that I keep on, or the evil that I keep on doing, that is what I tend to do. A wretched man that I am, who will save me? You notice how many, uh, how many activities are going on in there. In Paul's explanation, how many forces are at work? There's two. But, so, so in what two forces does Paul talk about? The flesh and the spirit, or sometimes you'll call it the mind of the spirit and the body of flesh, or the law in my members. Okay? And as long as these two are present and fighting, well and good. But when I sin willfully is when, what have I done with that Holy Spirit? I drove him away. That I use not only the fleshly members, but my will. So that now, who is ruling me? The flesh. And there is no room for the Holy Spirit, and therefore there is only one will. And when there is only one will, and that will is the flesh, then Christ is not present. Because you can drive out Jesus. And how do you drive him out? It's right there. In verse 26. How do you drive out Jesus? Sinning willfully. And again, that's not sinning out of weakness, but sinning how? What's the difference between sinning out of weakness and doing this? You know it's wrong, you do it anyway. Well, there's still something in you that's telling you it's wrong, right? Yeah. What? Yeah, you don't think it's wrong, or, uh, yeah, I, I, I would say just it's what you want to do, so you do it. You know, you don't care. That's the better way. Yeah, apathy, right? And I think you were expressing that, too. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, so, yeah, and, and apathy, right? I don't care what God says, and I will plan to do it all the same. Um, so, if we sin willfully, that's the willfully sinning. Repentance no longer is present. Yeah. I don't know the name of the movie, but I think it was Pastor Baisley recommended. So there was a movie where there were people in faith, and they were in, like they had to go to Japan or China, and these people were being tortured and had to like give up Christ. And there was a pastor, and then there was this amigo or good buddy. Yeah. And this and this amigo or good buddy constantly sinned. And then he constantly went back and asked, him, forgive me this time, forgive me. And the pastor constantly has to ask for forgiveness. And that, in the movie, this, his buddy was well aware he was denying Christ, sort of like what Peter was doing in the Bible three times. 
So I know we're driving out Christ, but Christ, even though we're trying to drive out Christ, Christ is still coming back to us somehow. And so maybe this goes into election and things like that, but the minute you drive them out, you should have some repentance almost almost immediately or shortly thereafter. You know what I mean? Who produces? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, the movie was Stephen Scorsese's production of Silence. Yes. Yeah, I thought that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. And, and I would recommend it for anyone to watch. But be careful because there's a lot of pitfalls in it. It's sort of a Rorschach test for believers. You can just about read anything into it that you want, so there is some caution for me. But that character is an interesting one because he actually betrays the community and then he comes back and wants forgiveness as Peter did. And so it's sort of a mystery. It makes you scratch your head and ask in the final analysis was he a Christian or not. And I'm not sure you can answer the question. But, yeah. but it does show about falling from faith, absolutely. Yeah, well then I thought of Peter after I thought of that movie. And like we compared him a week or two ago with uh, the Judas, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Judas wasn't repentant at all, and Peter was. So I struggle because I, I, maybe no one else here sins willfully. I know I sin willfully. Well, again, this is where I want to note the difference. Is there, there, we, we do believe in sins that are mortal and sins that are, I'm going to call them venial or out of weakness. This is a great distinction for you because it will help you in your own self-examination because the point of this is that your will is set to sin and there's no more struggle. There's no, and, and by struggle, I mean repentance. So when repentance is no longer present, then you indeed may have fallen into mortal sin. And so this is what we must be cautious of, is that it is in the nature of a Christian to repent. And so to sin willfully, here is, he, what, he's, what he's pointing out is that it is a mortal sin that would disqualify you from, uh, from the sacrifice of Jesus. What's the only thing that disqualifies you from the sacrifice of Jesus? Unbelief! Right? That faith is, is driven away. And so there, there, there then is the sin of weakness, which is when you sin like Paul, and you say, I hate what I do, and I don't want it. I did this, Lord, please forgive me. As opposed to saying, I did it, I'm going to keep doing it, I just don't care. And even Christians then can fall into this. And if we remain in mortal sin, it's not that we can't be converted. But if we remain in that mortal sin, there is no sacrifice left because we have to repent. Right? And without repentance, there is no sacrifice for sins. Um, so, uh, predestination or election is for the comfort of the elect and not for determining whether or not you are saved. The gospel determines whether or not you're saved. Jesus died for you. Period. Now, once you have faith and your trust in God, it is complete. And all who have faith in God are elect. Right? This is then the, the comfort of election. Is that you hear whoever says, confesses with their heart and believes with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he has died for your sins, you are elect. Period. There is no other discussion. And then you can take all the comfort you can from election. For God will not fail you. He will preserve you in the faith. But here it's not talking about election, but your sin. And the, the law is being applied. Yeah. I think too, I mean, Earl and I have thought about this because of the movie, I think. And what, what, one of the cautions, I think, about this is the idea that that we can rule with our emotions and sort of what you were talking about in the beginning. I can do this and if I feel bad enough about it afterwards, there's no problem with it because I feel bad about it. So um, the, the proper application of law and gospel, I think, is that when we find ourselves, well, I knew it was wrong, I did it anyway, to consider ourselves fallen from faith 
I have fallen from faith because I have done what I wanted to and what my flesh wanted to, and by doing that, I have not been led by the Holy Spirit. I have not allowed him to fight against it, but I actually did it. And so we should be properly frightened, and, and that's, the, that's the point of contrition, that when we are frightened of our sins, and therefore because I'm frightened because I've sinned against God, i got to get rid of it. That, that's right. proper contrition right. for sins. So when we find ourselves fallen, and I think, again, we look at that character from the movie, uh, he seemed to be generally frightened of his sin every time he came back. Yeah. And I sort of came back, I came, you know, 70 times 7 times, yeah, if he's truly frightened by his sin. But I think that's sort of the indication. If you think you can manage your sin in some way, then you don't need Christ, because you will right. manage right. your sin. But when sin gets so heavy that I can't manage it anymore, and I, I'm in despair, and there's nothing I can do about it, then Christ says, fuck, here I am. What have you, you been waiting for? Right, <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and, I, and I think, too, uh, again, I, there, so we're really talking about three kinds of people. Okay? One is that person who has sinned uh, in weakness. Not denying Christ or saying that Jesus doesn't cover his sins, but rather because of sin in our flesh, we say with Paul, what I want to do, I didn't do. And I hate that. That is the sin of weakness. And therefore, that is not a driving out of faith. The sin of willfulness or the mortal sin is the one who says, I've done it and so what? And I'll continue to do it. Um, and, and that person then has committed a sin which is not covered because he has driven out his faith. He's not repentant for it. He's not sorry that he did it. Now, this is many times disguised with uh, pride. So, for instance, if someone comes to you and says, well, you know, you did, you did this wrong thing, and you, your immediate response is not, wow, yeah, I, I might have done, yeah, okay, well, what did I do? You know, what, what, what law did I break? How did... How did I do this? Uh, your response is, I couldn't have done that. Or most pointedly, when you've been shown your sin and you say, no, I'm not confessing. Now you've committed mortal sin. Right, now, now you're rejecting repentance. Now you're saying, I don't want it anymore. And again, this is, this is not something that I could do in the sense that uh, I can apply the law to you. And I can ask you the question, are you, are you sorry for your sin? Have you repented of it? Do you, do you actually say it's a sin and that you deserve God's wrath? I can ask you those questions. But only you can know if you are sorry for your sins. Uh, and again, the sorrow is not, a, a, uh, it's not qualitative. And by that I mean, it's not, well, I feel really, really bad about this one, but I only feel a little bad about this one. It's not that, right? So don't, don't start examining yourself. Well, I'm not, I don't feel bad enough. The point is your recognition of it as sin and then your confessing of it to God and your desire not to do it anymore. All those are the points of faith. The point, and, and, the, and the reason why that's so important is your certainty. We wish to be certain about our salvation. Right? And, and if we wish to be that, then we will say, whatever is sin, Lord, get rid of it, I hate it, and cleanse me. And we will cling to Jesus. Yeah, I want to know what you think about, I think there's a close connection between verse 25 and 26. It, it speaks of, obviously the writer of the Hebrews is, there's a problem going on. Uh-huh, right, right. As some of you have done, you know, some of you are not assembling. So, so in, it goes right into 26. If you willfully sin, what's the willful sin? Despising the gathering together, potentially. Yeah. See a yeah, I, I, I think I would go even further and put it to all of them, right? To not draw near to God, uh, to not hold fast to confession, and to not gather together. Right. I think all those things then are that willful sin is. Sin drives us away from those things. And it's not just the gathering, it's what you get in the gathering. Right. You're despising the treasures. Right. You're despising the gospel. You're burying the gospel. Right. Yeah, and... And, and, and then you're lost. 
Right, and again, going back to, uh, even going back to all the way to chapter 2, what does he tell us in chapter 2? But, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And that's in the gospel. And that's what, what that, so that willful sin drives us away from the gospel, from Jesus and his crucifixion. I just, I really uh, like the question Tim asked, that kind of reframes us, because when we talk about willful sin, oftentimes, in my, my mind, I think of those sins that Earl does. No, but, but we, we start picking our, our pet sins. Oh. Yeah. But, but really what it's talking about here is, is the foundation of our life, the gathering together and the, and the, the, the the family of belief. Right. Abandoning that. When you ban that, all that other, those pet sins, those will come. Right. But if you stay within that family of faith, it's a bulwark against those things. That's right, yeah. But and but I think, too, that any of those sins can become yes. a, a, a wedge between you and Christ. The, the, the other thing that comes to my mind is I think there's a real tie, as, as Tim was saying, that, that runs through with the corporate coming together. But there, there's also a theme of the Lord's Supper. In verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. So us, there's a corporate profession of faith. And this is what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that as, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we profess or we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's right. and, then, and then later on, when That's it right. talks about treading under feet the blood of the covenant, if you do a word search in the New Testament, where does it lead you? This is the blood of my new covenant, uh, the Lord's Supper, despising the sacrament and making it a common thing instead of the blood of Christ that we share. So that profession and that reception of the Lord's Supper are, are tied together in this whole thing. Right. And, and, and then, then, who is Lord? I mean, th- this, is, this, is the, this is the point, is we have a new will. And that's why I really like the translation of willful. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, so, yeah, again, we, we sin knowingly. Um, but here, again, we, we have a will that can be dominated. And as Luther would say... Uh, we are the ass that is ridden by God or by Satan. This then is how we diagnose ourselves. And when we're, when we're with one another, this is how we, we see one another. You know, that your brother who is stuck in some sin, whatever it may be, is in danger of separating himself from everyone. And, and you're right, because that's what sin does. And, and this is the thing, and notice it's in general. If we sin, he doesn't see, he couldn't name something particular, but he doesn't. If we sin with any, any sin that has now taken domination of me aims at getting rid of God. And if you go back straight up, then how do you get rid of God? You get rid of assembling together, and you get rid of holding fast, and you get rid of drawing near. Right. So, and that's that's the that's so sin. Then I think, and, and you, I mean, you probably could go because each of these is there on purpose. As soon as you stop assembling together, what happens to holding fast the confession? It grows weaker, and then what happens to your drawing near to God? Right. It it, it falls apart. Right. So so again, we we should not treat these things as if they're nothing. But sin impacts us. And how do we recognize if we're willfully sinning? Are we gathering? That's, that's point one. And if we're not, why are we avoiding it? What sin is keeping us from this? Yeah. The thing that comes to my mind when we talk about all this is the word consent, which means to turn away from it. So the person who is sorry for something may be afraid of, uh, uh, say, uh, turning to Moses to God or being not just but he's afraid of dying because he's in the water. Or maybe he's afraid of what people will think of him. And I, uh, Edwin and I were talking about this, uh, Peter and Judas. What was wrong with Judas? He obviously had a kind of repentance, but he threw himself to his own death. Why? Because he wasn't in fellowship with God. He did not see Jesus as being the, the, 
even though the Savior and, and God, he, he, he was essentially, if you will, we use this word earlier today, alone. He was alone. And I think that the value of the church and us being together is that when we are together, uh, one or two, one, the two or more are gathered together in my name, there, there I am. And so therefore we need to be in fellowship with Christ and that we do together. And the other thing that's important is that and no one can confess Jesus' name unless he has the Holy Spirit in his faith. That's right. And that's the key thing. If you cannot profess Jesus' name, if you cannot turn your face to Jesus, you're not trusting him. That's right. And then you need your fellow <coughs> church, going to church to help straighten you out and, and, to, and to console you, not to beat you over the head, but to, to, to teach, preach, and just pat you on the back and then re-educate you, such as a Bible study that this will go Right. So, I mean, uh, you know, what I like about what you've done in this, uh, in this Bible study is Hebrew really opened it up for me. Because uh, just seeing that little thing about being together, that one little phrase in there, it means so much. It goes along with everything. Because everything is what we do, like the baptisms and communion, etc. That's right. So it's a marvelous little book. Amen. Amen. So, so to dig deeper then into what it means to sin willfully, it's good to see its results. So what, what is the result of those things? Look at verse 29. Um, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? So if you're thinking of mortal sins, think of it like this. If I'm willfully sinning, this is what I'm doing. I'm taking the Son of God and I'm walking on him treading him under my feet, treating him as nothing. That's what sin does that's willful. It's saying, Jesus, your sacrifice means this much. Don't care. And I think that will help because if your heart recoils at that and you, and you say, oh, I don't, I, no, never, good. Then the Holy Spirit's doing his job and he's making you despise your own sins. Because this is the thing. We, we find out our own sin. That's the diagnosis. And then we can help our brother find his. So, trampling Christ. That's, that's one way to think of this. Here's another way to think of it. Um, counted the blood of the covenant, which, by which he was sanctified, a common thing. Oh, being Christian means nothing. What, what's the big deal? I have other bigger fish to fry. As in... Have I climbed high enough in my career? Am I a good enough father, a good enough mother, a good enough whatever that the world tells me to be? And then I think nothing of Jesus. This then is counting him as a common... Th Again, the word common means like paper clips or like a piece of paper that you'd throw away. How do we treat the blood of Christ? How do we treat Jesus? King Jesus, the word unholy. Yeah, oh yeah, treating them as unholy things, common or unholy. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, okay, and, uh, and finally, in that verse 29, and insulted the spirit of grace. What does it mean to insult the Holy Spirit? Yeah, to say, get lost, right? But to insult someone means that you are not treating them as you should. That's what causes offense. What causes offense to a king is you don't treat him like a king. And so what causes offense to the spirit is you're not treating him like the one who is supposed to do his job. What's the job of the Holy Spirit? What? To intercede for you. And what else does the Holy Spirit do? To convict the world of sin. So if you're saying, well, I mean, you know the verse well, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Because what's the Holy Spirit's job? To show you your sins. And again, it seems so opposite of everything we think of when we think of the victorious life. Because the whole point is that the Holy Spirit would show you more and more what? You said, so you're actually praying that God would show you just how bad you are. Why? Because what's the other thing the Holy Spirit does? Yeah, and how does he do it? So he showed you your sin, and now what does he do? 
He forgives it. He takes each one as if they were a wound. And what does he do with them? He heals them. By your wounds we are healed. And taking the sin out of us, what's left? Righteousness. Righteousness, right? And again, this is the holy exchange. So when we deny the first part of it, when we say we have no sin, there, there is no truth left in us. And we insult the Holy Spirit. So again, all those are just different elements of the same thing. A mortal sin is trampling on Jesus, is telling him his blood means the same as the water that I spit out of my mouth when I'm brushing my teeth. And when I tell the Holy Spirit, get lost, I have no need of you, those are mortal sin. When you're doing those things, you're committing mortal sin. And, and why is he telling you that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And then it, it gets to the point where you see friends who, they seem to be able to do whatever they want. They really enjoy it. I don't want to feel guilty about everything. And that's where, if we start growing weary of being convicted, then we can walk away. Yeah, right. And then say, I don't need you, Jesus, because I'm not going to That's right. Yeah, the old man gets tired of being crucified. He gets tired of dying. He wants to live just a little. Yeah. Yeah, so once again, um, we got this we got this talk, we got this blood of the diatheke. Oh yeah. The Lord's Supper, right? And we trample the good things when we trample that. So it goes back right. to the assembly, and that's what we, we do when we assemble. It's all kind of connected here. That's right. And it, it's it's almost like an admonishment to a certain group of people because Later on, we haven't gotten there yet, but it says, recall the former days when you weren't doing this. <laughs> That's right. That's but right. Now you are, or some of you are. Right, right. So this whole sin's connected to refusing the gifts that Jesus has given. That's right, yeah. And that's, that's, that's going to damn you. Right, yeah, and, and going back to his, some of his first admonitions are, you assume that your teachers, when you know nothing... You've stopped listening to the word of God. And then where? With the assembly. You stop going. You don't care anymore. Or when you do go, you act like you already know it all. And therefore, it's no good to you. Okay, so yeah, but I, I think if we, we move then further to verse 31. What is he talking about here? It's fearful to fall into the hands of the living God. Why would it be fearful in this instance? Because what's going to happen? He will judge you as condemned. Because not, no, longer, no longer is it for your sin. But more so because you trampled on Jesus. And that then is deserving of everlasting death. So now the, verse 32. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you made a spectacle, oh, sorry, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. So yeah, this is getting to, clearly they went through some persecution and were called awful things and even were to the point of suffering greatly. Um, and, and, and now he brings in himself, verse 34. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Now, why do they think Paul... Why is their suffering so connected to Paul? Because he suffered a lot. Yeah, but why would they suffer because he's suffering? That's what love does. And if he goes down, we all go. Because we're united. Going back to the assembling together, why would you forsake it? Well, one of the reasons you would forsake assembling together is so that you don't have to endure any suffering. So that you can get away from that group of crazy Christians 
who meets in the midst of pandemics and who does crazy things like take the Lord's Supper, even though you might get sick. You guys are crazy. I'm not going to endure it. You say that people are sinners. I don't like it. But when we do the right thing, we suffer every time one of us endures suffering. Because they are suffering in Christ, and therefore we are suffering with them. So Paul says, you accepted the plundering of your goods for my sake. Meaning, how could they have avoided the plundering of their goods? How could they have avoided their goods being plundered? Deny Paul! And, and this then is connected with what? If they denied Paul, who would they deny? Jesus. Yeah. This plundering of goods, is that them giving to support them in prison? Or is that actually like, you know, the people looted their stuff? I think it could be both. Yeah. It could be both. Because there was, a, there was times when, you know, for instance, Jason, who's brought before the assembly and they, they take a, a, basically a bribe from him and make him go home. So it could be that they were brought before people and demanded money of, or it could be that they're using their money to support Paul because he can no longer support himself. That could be. But either way, their connection to Paul is their connection to Jesus. And they see it that way because it's the teaching, because it's the fellowship. Okay. Um, knowing that, so, so this is why you're doing at the end of verse 34. Knowing this, that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. All right, so, so, there, so they, it seems then that they're in the midst of suffering and that they're being tempted to do what? To, get, to give up. And how, what would that look like? Stop gathering together. Stop meeting with, stop talking to Paul. Don't associate with the apostles. Don't associate with the church. That's it. That's all you have to do. Don't believe your sins are forgiven. Right. Uh, so, why would we? Why would we suffer in this way? What's, what's, our, what's our goal then? I mean, again, it doesn't make any sense for us to suffer in this life and to lose everything we have unless we have something else. What's our goal? Eternal life. And, and more than that, what is eternal life? Being with Jesus. And where is Jesus here? He's in prison. Because he's in Paul. And he's in suffering because wherever Jesus is, there's where I wish to be. Jesus is on the cross, therefore I will receive the cross. And whatever is his, I want to be mine. Uh, Jesus told his disciples this would happen. He said, if they've called me Beelzebul, what do you think they're going to call you? But notice then that, again, our testing will come when we are actually having to bear witness about what? Yeah, about what we believe, about what we cling to. And I will not forsake that teacher because he clings to the truth and you can put me in jail and you can steal all my things and you can take whatever I have. I will not give it up. Whether it's called Paul or Luther or anyone. And today, that means being Lutheran. And well, I won't forsake it. Because what else could I be? I don't know. I, there's, no other, there's no other name that I could cling to right now. All right. So, therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. 36. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. <coughs> For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, 
but of those who believe in the saving of the soul. Oh, sorry, believe to the saving of the soul. All right, so th- this is great. I, he's, he's just a great preacher because he just told them uh, that they were being children, that they were blocking their ears. But now, what is he saying about them in verse 39? But we're not those people. We're not that. You are not that. Now, how could he know? Yeah, he doesn't know. But what he does know is that the Holy Spirit will do his work and that all those who are called by this are called by the gospel. And therefore, you can be called out of that sin that was willful. And you can be called out of those who drew back because there's still time. Because today is the day of repentance. And this should then cause those who may have fallen into those things, if now he's saying, but we are not of those. What would, what would, what would we want to say to this statement? What is our response to this? But we are not of those. You're right. Yeah, that's it. To affirm it. And that's what faith does, right? Yeah, that, yeah, me. That's me. And that's the point, is that when we hear the gospel, we say, yes, amen. Let it be so. Because those who would deny this are those who would say, you're right, I'm out of here. I'm drawn back. Right? And notice then, what's the difference here between verse 39 and verse 22? What's the image? What does verse 22 tell us to do? Draw near. And therefore, once we're near, let us not do what? Draw back. So we come near and we stay near. How do we do that? By holding fast. Yeah, in our drawing near, we do that by clinging to what? How do we cling to Jesus? It's got to be the word. He said that. And this is, this is the thing. We Christians, we, uh, Jesus wants you to know where he is. He is not playing hide and seek. He wants you to know where to find him, how to find him, and how to stay there. If you want to find Jesus and stay with him, you need the word and you need his sacraments. They're necessary for maintaining and being in the faith. And you'll find them in his church. We, we say this in our confessions. We say, if you want to find the church of God, where do you find it? Where were, if you, let's say you weren't here and you, were, you, you read this and you said, hey, I want to draw near to Jesus. Where would I find it? Marks and where, and, yeah, right, in the Marks. And what are the marks of the church? What are the signposts? The word, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Where the word is purely proclaimed and, the, and baptism and the Lord's Supper are properly given. That's it. That's where you find it. And then you draw near to a location, to an altar, and therefore to the people. How do you get it? Well, no matter how much I confess, that doesn't give me forgiveness. Okay, you get it. Aha! Right, right, yeah. So they're means. You're, but you're right, Earl, because again, if we were to rely on something different, whether it be my feelings or my work or what I'm doing, it's not, it's not guaranteed. But the certainty is that it's in the Word, and wherever the Word is, I have it. And if I have it in myself, then I have it in me. That's why the, the, the sacraments are given to you. They're not meant to just stay there. That's why we don't worship the, uh, you know, we don't have a tabernacle up there. Not because I think it's evil, but because that's not the point. The point is that he comes to you and that you are united to Christ. All right. Well, let's close with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we have heard your word this day. 
Draw us near to you, dear Lord, and let us remain, so that we never draw back. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. There's still more baked goods. There's more, there's more goods if you want some. Oh, yeah. I'll take that. Thanks, Frank.